afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. Thank you for joining us today. I'd like to call in the spirit of the ancestors, my own ancestors, those who bring all that is good and true and beautiful into my life, and also those of our guests and those of everyone who is listening. We call in those ancestral helping spirits to be with us here today. It is on their shoulders that we stand, and we ask today to truly manifest the future that they envisioned and go beyond that with the power of our own dreaming. We call out to the energy of the earth, our first and most ancient ancestor, and all the great spirits of the land to hold us well today that we might know our belonging to this place and our connection through the earth element to each other. And that we might know a feeling of community here that humanity may not have felt for quite a while. May we inspire that spirit today in our conversation. And I call out to the energy of the sky above to come down into our proceedings here today to bring us blessing, to bring us protection, generosity, and benevolence of this universe that we might feel through each breath we take today. In our speaking, we might feel that connectedness of all things. And today, and especially, I call out to the energy of the neighbor, the energy of the community, that spirit of feeling yourself as one in a greater whole. Call out to the energy of the wolf to be with us here today and of the teacher, Not the strict teacher getting you to respond by rote, but the teacher that speaks to your heart and to your belly and asks you to surrender who you have been, to follow a path, to lead you to who you might become. I call out to these energies to be with us here today, to hold us in good circle, in sacred circle together. And finally, I call out to the energy of the heart that binds us all, that brings the passions of our belly together with the clarity of our mind, that each one of us might know in this life our soul's true purpose and to think and to speak and to live in a way that brings those gifts to the world in full and magnificent manifestation in this lifetime, while we're all still young enough to enjoy the fruits of those labors. So everyone, today we have a very special guest, and I would like to welcome to the show Reverend Chaman Jean-Luc Edwards. Thank you for being with us here today. Thank you, Christina. Thank you for inviting me on your show. And we have a very interesting show today. And the title of the show comes out of a conversation that um, I had with our guest, which is this idea of what are we doing today? Can we make shamans? Because traditionally there is this idea, you know, that shamans arrive here as the answer to a prayer. So this is part of what we're going to be talking about today. But first off, before we get, I get too carried away, what I'd like to do is to ask you, how did you get from being a nice boy that grew up in, where did you grow up? Um, that's difficult to say. It was scattered. Let's say scattered. Okay. But in the end, my, my, most of my childhood was in Africa and my adolescence in England. Well, okay, so maybe you weren't a nice, normal little boy. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you know, probably not. How did you get from, you know, everyone trying to raise you up to fit in with everybody else to where you are today? As you reflect back, what are the points that you now see as the things that were important that moved you to the man that you are now? 
thought about this yesterday when I was approaching the concept of where I'd got to. Uh, and I think like most people who believe that they're on a spiritual path, we can identify um, pivotal moments or even imagined moments. And when I looked back at them, I had to say to myself, now, did I really see that bright light? Did I really hear that voice? There were incidents like that. My life began as uh, my parents wanting me to be a lawyer, as which frightened the life out of me. But I went on to... Um, I actually followed in those footsteps and, um, like a good little boy, followed what my parents wanted me to be. I think one day uh, I was looking at the world and it didn't satisfy me. And through adolescence I had the usual depressions and stuff like that. Now this might come as a shock to some people and it certainly is an embarrassment in some way to me, but there was a point where I left society and joined the church. Ah. <laughs> which, which I say even now cringing slightly. But because I believe everything was important, I stuck with it and began to understand that human beings were moved by some external force, whether this was God, saints, Jesus, whatever, there was a movement, and that caught me, and I really began my exploration as to what that catch was from that point. But I wasn't um, a nice little boy, and I got distracted. <laughs> I got distracted by the world. Mm -hmm. And even looking back, I began to understand from where I sit now that it's those distractions that I'm often called to address in the people who come and see me. Mm. I went on to do lots of other stuff, and I think the pivotal point was I began to uh, work in an AIDS hospice in England, one of the first AIDS hospices that people somewhat accepted. And I started to look at the dance between life and death. And that often brought me about that concept, what were we really doing here? I then went on to study counseling, began my training, became a psychologist. And then that fateful day when I was told I didn't have enough credit points to actually get my degree and was told to go and look at spiritual metaphor, because I'd spoken about it. Lots of searching, decided I'd go and research shamanism, and the rest is sort of history, as they say. Mm. <laughs> I do remember sitting with my teacher saying, I don't really believe any of this. Well, that was 15 years ago, and now I teach shamanism. So the world goes round. So what? Was there something in particular about the path of shamanism that you follow now that particularly spoke either to your heart or to your passions? Or I think when I began, I was doing what most, um, how can we put this, uh, non-indigenous, and, and I'm not sure what that means, 
people do. You you enter into a training which is somewhat new age, which is somewhat exploratory, and it's, it's fairly general. What spoke to me was always a question. There always seemed to be a question there was no answer to. And what I learned was that one of the drives of shamanism is to actually let go of the question and realize that we're living an answer. And that's all that matters. We don't actually have to know the question. That gave me a great deal of peace. And I looked around and saw people who were struggling with questions and ignoring the fact that we were actually living an answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's from that point that I thought, okay, I, I perhaps need to um, contain this answer in a way that people can come and enjoy the joy of that answer. And so I was researching and discovered that one of the callings to me was the separation within the world. One of the pieces of research I did was, why was, why was the world needing shaman today? And I was looking at the world in its fracturing. And I was looking at that and comparing it to the people who came to see me for uh, the healing of fractured souls. And one, one day, you know, I bet one day somebody will write some mythology about me, there was an insight, the soul of the world was fractured. And I wanted to bring that together, you know, some high ideal in me, I wanted to bring that together. And I began to research a really ancient, some, somewhat forgotten tradition, which was a northern European tradition, which was about tribes and families that stuck, that stuck together, and that everything that happened within this tribe or this family or this clan always related to the community being held in some cohesive structure. And there was a pathfinder, which we now understand was a shaman, who always brought the tribe, the clan, the family back into that safe relationship. And they had based this on watching packs of wolves. And I thought this was just amazing. And I researched that. It was a very dark tradition because the ultimate goal of the wolf was to return the world to its original state, which was a bit scaring for modern society, for the church, for uh, governments, because this to them meant anarchy, this meant going back to the darkness, this meant going back to pagan ways. But the tradition was to take us back to a simpler, more equal relationship with the world, and the man would lose his godlike place on earth. He would not be a guardian in control, uh, the superior being. All that would disappear, and we would regain our place as equal with all the other beings on earth and be reunited with that spiritual context that there is only the one, there is only the great, and like a great picture. And we're just some pigment on the canvas. We are not actually an observer of the picture. 
That's beautiful. And so you have a happy home now for yourself? A happy home. In this tradition, you find a way to be with your ups and your downs and express them one way or another? Uh, <laughs> that always makes me laugh. I, I was sat with a, my, a group of my students the other day, and they were talking about um, the future and how when they'd sorted all their shadows out, they would be happy. <laughs> and I looked at them and I said, you know, you have entered a tradition. You are answering a call that actually isn't about you being happy. And I, I remember, and it, it worries me that I know this stuff, I remember relating them the story of St. Bernadette, who was telling um, some nuns that the, the bright shining lady had said, I'm not going to promise you that you're going to be happy. But afterwards, we'll see what your destiny is. Beautiful. So we're going to break, and we'll come back after and discuss more about John Luke Edwards and his path, the golden path of shamanism, and what are we doing with shamanism today. Welcome back, everyone. Guest today is John Luke Edwards, and we are talking today about shamans and where do they come from and why are they here, and particularly this old, old idea which I think is a beautiful idea and probably one of the best definitions of what is a shaman, which is that shamans are an answer to a prayer. And so um, this, is, this is what we'd actually like to talk about today, is, is, what, what is what is happening when a shaman happens? Where do they come from? And what are we doing today when we think we're making them? So, Jean-Luc, mm-hmm. so how does... How do you work with this in your tradition, this whole idea of shamans and who who comes into this tradition? And, and how do you... Your, your tradition has very clear standards. Indeed. It is... Um, I don't like to use the word belief, but I'm going to use that now. It is our belief. It's a context of our tradition that, that shamans aren't made, that they are sent by the creator, the great spirit, the great one, the one above, whatever we're going to give that title to. And they are sent in an answer to a prayer. We have to come to think, who is actually making this prayer? The prayer comes from one of these fractures that I was talking about earlier. And that fracture could be in a family, it could be in a a clan, it could be in a community, it could be in a country, indeed it could be the world. And this prayer, called a lamentation, reaches out into the consciousness of spirit. And spirit, which is working towards, and I'm speaking as if I know spirit, spirit is working towards bringing everything back to the essential one to that harmonious beginning. Not in some retrospective way, but in a, in a way that finds the destiny of spirit. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I know what's in the mind of the creator. I think a shaman has to be honest and say, I don't know. I don't know what the creator's plan is. All I know is that I'm part of that plan. 
So this, this cry, this lamentation, reaches out into spirit. And spirit, in order to bring back that harmony, sends, uh, manifests a shaman. The shaman comes into the world and instantly gets distracted. And one hopes, and that certainly would happen to me, and certainly happens to my students, that there are signs and portents and great flashing lights and whatever that remind the, the spirit of the shaman, oh, I was sent here to do a job. And that job is the other precept of our tradition, that a shaman comes to, in a sense, pin down the chaos. And it is by their presence that chaos is held at bay, that they come to, a bit like a sewing needle, to sew back the fracture, the disharmonies. Now that doesn't always mean that a shaman is going to come and uh, paint their face and put feathers in their hair and drum and sing. It doesn't mean that that's what they're going to do. It means that they are sent as this this stake in the ground that holds the, the tent in place as the wind blows. Well, one of the things that we've talked about in past shows, I think, is, an, is along this line, which is that that past shamanic cultures don't necessarily have the answers for us today. They have the way of getting the answers, and that they have, and that there are functions that must occur for us to be well, humans to be well in the world. And the shamans help us, in spite of whatever the form of life has taken, to find those functions again and to perform them together. Is this the kind of thing that we're talking about? In a way, I set a a task for my students to tell me why shamans were necessary in modern-day society. And what we discovered is, we talked about shaman uh, evolving, shaman integrating, shaman taking on roles in modern society that make them acceptable. And we looked at that. And I would like to suggest that that's just not true. I think if a shaman is this, is this symbol of the concrete spirit that holds the world together, there is an inherent part of the shaman that is unchanging, that they still hold that ancient wisdom, that they still bring that primal presence into a world that is being distracted. So I'm not sure that um, a shaman compromises with the world. I think a shaman calls the world back to that stable point. Now, that might make the shaman um, fearful. Certainly, it would make them isolated. Certainly, it would make them a person that probably would be seen to stand apart. They're not always going to be the nice guy because what they're doing is they're reminding us of what our destiny is and not what we want out of the world. And that probably is one of the reasons why shamanism went through a stage, and you know, in some places, 
it's still in that stage where shamanism is viewed on as dark, as somewhat satanic, because it's trying to take us back rather than push us forward. It's doing neither of those things. It's reminding us of what our place is in the world. And if we look at the fractures in the world, that's because we want more than there is. So it's possible then for contemporary shamans to arrive as a response to a call and then either become distracted or adapt so much to contemporary life that they may lose their connection to that ancestral wisdom, to that unchanging aspect of whatever we want to call it, truth, wisdom, I don't know what to call it. You know, Christina, I would love to say, no, that can't possibly happen. But I've sat with enough clients who have been to shaman, shamanic practitioners, and these shamans have been distracted by the ways of modern society, by the callings of ego, and have actually taken other people along that path, path of lost. I think shamans do get distracted. And one of the things that we tried it to do with, in some small way, and it might not be the right way, but it, it seemed a good way at the time, to have um, a society here in, in British Columbia where people can align themselves to a set of traditions, a set of practices. I don't want to say to be made accountable, but that's actually what I'm saying, mm-hmm. so that we can actually hold ourselves and say, you know, if I walk this narrow path and I start to slip, well, my community, my traditional clan are going to say, hey, John Luke, you're, you're missing the point and will bring me back. Now, I think that's probably what we need because that's how the Western world works. Now, maybe if I was a, a shaman in the Amazon jungle, I wouldn't need that. But actually, when I've spoken to uh, indigenous shamans, their, their life is tougher because the community that they are, they are called to serve is watching them and will not let them slip. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's, that's not happening in modern society. So we have to be our own guardians, our own um, watchers, our own policemen, in a sense. One of the things I find myself saying often to clients is, I'm not your therapist. It's not my job to make you feel good. If that's what you want, we need to hang up now and you need to go find a therapist. Yeah. That's yeah. not my job. I... I I, I believe that a therapist is part of the, of, of the shamanic role, as a healer is, as a priest is, as a guide is. And what's happened is the traditional, the, the lineage shaman, in order to be acceptable, has focused on one of these parts to the detriment of the other parts. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, I, I think there are very good therapists. I think that's where I started. But we lose ourselves because we get distracted from the complete. So as we come back uh, from this next break, um, let's talk about that a little bit more. And also, what do we as contemporary people need to get past so that we don't lose that real passion and that real 
the shaman role that's in there in the heart of all these other facets of sort of applying shamanism to people. Indeed. Welcome back, everyone. And as the nice lady just reminded us, we are live today. You're welcome to call in or send an email. As we're continuing to talk about shamanism today with Jean-Luc Edwards, who is um, a practitioner of the Sacred Circle of the Great Mystery Society, which has which is about this relationship with the woven path that we've been talking about. And if you want a whole bunch of really exquisite information about it, the website is www.circleofgreatmystery.com. And you'll be able to find a whole bunch of information about their principles and their laws and the things, the standards that Jean-Luc's been talking about, um, and also about the upcoming conference, which we'll hopefully come back to at the end of our talk here today. Um, but I'm just going to send you all there because I think the things we're talking about right now are are interesting and you're welcome to go to thecircleofgreatmystery.com and read it at your leisure. So we're we're coming back to this topic or this idea we were talking about before break, which is that the, that the shaman today in the contemporary world, the shaman really has to stand up for these deeper mysteries or these, these, these ancestral truths or wisdoms that are not necessarily shared by the neighbors today. And that the shaman, there's a certain amount of, I consider it, in my own life, in my own experience, I consider it the warriorship of my practice, to be able to stand up and be true to the information that I'm receiving from spirit or the guidance that I'm being given to solve whatever I'm being asked to address, um, even when it's unpopular and even when it's hard, even when nobody wants to do it, even when that water ritual is in December and that water's looking really cold. Whatever it is, it's not easy. I, I, mean, I haven't practically, I haven't found any of this easy except for the fact that somewhere deep in my soul, I feel that I found what I came here to do. That part simplifies because, of course, being in corporate America and not doing what I came here to do felt horrible. <laughs> that was awful. <laughs> you know, so so there's an ease in the sense that I feel in a right place. But boy, I sure don't feel like I'm ever in control of what that place is. I mean, it's 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 a challenge. And so one of the things about shamanism if it's going to live at a time with fracture, and we've also talked in past shows about separation, the myth of separation, and that big lie, and how that leads to more and more separation and fracturing, is that it takes a certain warriorship to be a shaman, a certain visionary capacity, a, a willingness to teach, um, and, and obviously the healer role. There's a tendency to try to put shamans, I think, in the healer role because it's com- more comfortable for people. And, and, and it's not so comfortable to see the shaman in the warrior and the teacher and the visionary aspects. That's how I think of it. Um, so in, in your work with people, and particularly with your students and your, your, your people that, are, that you're teaching, mm-hmm. where does warriorship come in to what you're doing? There's a whole year of warriorship. We have a, a three-year training. The first year is to look at wounds, and the second year is to understand the principle of being this shamanic warrior. 
one of the things I started here, I was concerned that, um, and, I, and I say this with great respect and humility, because there are great people out there, but I've been in a number of shamanic circles when I was training, and we're great people, and we sit, and we do journeys, and we drum, and we say nice things, and we hold hands, and we send out spirits, and that's, that's wonderful, that's wonderful. And there's a point where I looked at the world and thought, but are we hiding? Are we pretending to do the work? Are we really just hiding away because we don't want people to say, oh, a shaman, what's that? And, you know, my students spend ages debating on how they're going to explain to their family and friends what it is they do. We started an outreach program here where we just don't sit and bang drums. We have a whole series of plans and projects where we go out into the community and do stuff. And in doing that stuff, we get the odd looks. We've never actually got a burning cross in the, planted in the lawn in front of the house. But certainly we've had the phone calls reminding us that St. Paul said, um, you shall not suffer a witch to live, which I think means they want me burnt at the stake. And there's a point where you have to stand up and say, fine, but I'm out there to fight. The world is fractured, and in that fracturing, there are demons. And by demons, I mean that all that fracture, all that unresolved emotion, all that pain, all that loneliness, which, which takes on either corporeal or indeed conscious life and turns itself against humanity. That's, that's a battle. We do have to be out there and be seen to be fighting. It's a bit like, um, and this is just coming to my head, so I'm making this up as I go along. It's a bit like Joan of Arc. One of the things that she did was actually to be a symbol so that people would go and fight. Well, they fought the English, didn't they? Perhaps I wouldn't be saying that. But they did go out and fight because they had a figurehead. And we as shaman can't just be sat in, you know, I'm sat in my medicine room now, and it's very pretty, and there are twinkling lights, and there are candles burning. But I actually have to be down on the east side of, the, of my city where people are suffering and are in pain and are lost and lonely. Mm -hmm. And I need to be out there. And as shaman, we, I feel like I'm shouting on a soapbox because... I believe a warrior is called to war. We, we don't make wars, but there are battles we are called to, and we're not called to maintain that war. We're there to bring an end to war. And the human race is at war, probably at war with itself, and we need to be out there and bring an end to that war. We can't sit and burn sage leaves and talk nice. Well, I do wonder sometimes what's being created when shamans are theoretically being raised up through training that has no standards. That has no... I mean, one of the things that I found so fascinating cross-culturally in shamanism when I was researching the encyclopedia was how many cultures were clear about the story of the first shaman, which was usually not a human. Mm-hmm. 
and that the shamans all endeavored to live up to that standard, which by definition they were never going to do because it wasn't human in the first place. Our very tradition is about a wolf, that first wolf, who actually was created to bring destruction and darkness. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a hard thing to live up to. Yeah. It's not even a nice thing. But it's a standard, and so I wonder, you know, what, what is being created if we try to present, yes, you can become a shaman, but here there's no standards. Go make it up on your own. I just don't think that's going to work, personally. And again, there are good people out there, Christina, doing good things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But human beings get distracted. Yeah. And it's that distraction that brings the shadow. Yeah. And there are there are misinformations that flow, which I feel are the things that often push me in the role of the teacher, like the idea that if you can journey, you're a shaman. <gasps> you know, whereas it seems to me if you can journey, you're human. Finally, you know, I, I mean, hope so. Yeah, you know, and that that you're you're meant to be in relationship with the spirit world. That's part of what it means to be human on this planet. Now, shaman's a whole other story, but this, you know, in in my work, it means you're finally a grown up. You know, so so I think that there's also a lot of misinformation, partly because most of the people up until now that have been writing about shamanism and English-speaking academic and, you know, didn't necessarily know what they were talking about. <laughs> you're, putting, you're putting that soapbox in my way again, aren't you? <laughs> um, I worked uh, for a few years with... Uh, one of the indigenous peoples here in BC. Now, they called me um, a medicine man because uh, shaman somehow translates in their language to stupid white man who doesn't know what he's doing. Um, <laughs> and so it became a great joke. It became mm-hmm. a great joke that uh, the only way, the way I got away with it is because my part of my ancestral blood is East Indian, so I was partly Indian. I had a slightly dark skin and long black hair, so I was sort of accepted. And one of the things they would say was, you know, we've lost our relationship with the world. And in losing our relationship with the world, we try to fill it in with the world, society. And the, their medicine men no longer were held in respect because as you filled in the the spaces, the gaps of loss with modern society, the traditions which inherently held the conditions and the accountability got lost as well. And so you found that a medicine man would say something and they would be now viewed with suspicion rather than treating them as the elder with that ancestral wisdom, that had become lost as well. So for a modern-day shaman, it's not a question of doing the odd weekend thing, reading the odd book. So as we come back in our last section, what um, I'd like to talk about is, given all of this, how we draw the power of ritual into our contemporary lives to transform and to heal. So thank you, everyone. I hope you'll join us on our last section. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking this afternoon with Jean-Luc Edwards from Canada at the moment. Um, we're going to bring a couple things together in this last, last section of the show. 
One is this this idea we've been talking about. It's not an idea. I think it's a reality. We're all experiencing the fracturing of things, people, nations, whatever. The fracturing of things, and then the warriorship of the shaman in 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 staying with ancient wisdom and bringing it into manifestation here today to address in some way the fracturing. So that's a long way to say it. I think the words we tend to use in English for this effort is the creation of ritual or perhaps the creation of ceremony. So what I'd like to talk about is is creating ritual as a contemporary shaman to to address fracturing that you that comes across your path. I know one of the aspects of your tradition that you spoke about which is you don't get to turn people away. That's right. And so fracturing comes to your door. <laughs> Constantly. Yeah. We have, uh, you're right, you've been obviously reading the website quite clearly. Uh, we're not allowed. Our tradition uh, forbids us to turn anyone away. In fact, we cannot stop working with someone until they release us. So the very fact that they ask us, you know, we get phone calls or uh, emails and someone will ask us something and it's a bit like, um, I'm going to reveal myself here, the, the doctor on Star Trek, that they forget to switch him off. Because mm-hmm. the moment you ask, we start working. Mm-hmm. We can't stop until people tell us to stop. So we turn no one away. So we get to see a great deal of fracturing. What I, what I always say is that <clears throat> there's that... Um, statement in the Catholic Catechism that asks what a sacrament is. And they have this amazing, beautiful piece that says a sacrament is an outward sign of inward grace. That it's an outward sign that something divine is moving internally. And when we construct our ceremonies and rituals, we always have that concept in mind that the ceremony, in a sense, is a manifestation of something magical, something spiritual, of the divine moving. And in a sense, the work has already happened. The intention has already set that divine reconciliation in place. And it's the ceremony, the ritual, that connects to our subconscious souls that tell us, as human beings, something magical has happened. And that reprograms that subconscious soul to live differently, to engage with the world, whether it's the physical world, whether it's the spiritual world, whether it's the emotional world, but to engage with it in a healed way. Because he was a ceremony, and it was constructed to show that something important was happening. And if it's been constructed just for me, then, hey, I must be important too. And you get that sense of healing from a subconscious movement within you. So when we come to make ceremonies and rituals, we have quite a defined, we're very defined, we have a defined concept of what the ceremony should contain. But above all, it should be witnessable so that people see something special, something magical, something spiritual is happening. The divine becomes present. 
and we always talk about the concept of the witness. So in one of your rituals that I have had the pleasure of experiencing, the swaying walk, mm-hmm. in, in your writing about it, you talked about how important the aspects of movement and sound and touch are in the context within the fourth of the witness. Mm-hmm. So why is it that you feel these three things are important, that having all three of these things are important? I think it's back very quickly to that place where we just can't sit and beat drums. We have to be, you know, we are, we are manifested in corporeal bodies. And the way that we engage with the spirit of the world is by what we hear, by what we see, by what we smell, by what we touch, by what we taste. Those five senses are our entry to spirit. Forget what's in our head. It's those five senses. So when it comes to ceremony, to ritual, especially in the swaying walk, which I, I remember I remember doing when you were there, there's that really sense of intimacy with other people and with a sort of conjoined spirit, that those souls merging through the sense of touch, through what you hear. And it wasn't just the drums. Remember that, that, that occasion when we were there, People were crying, people were screaming, people were laughing, people were shouting. It's those sounds that made the ritual the focus of spiritual intervention. Those aspects for humans are really important that we need to be touched, we need to see, we need to hear. And so all those are written into that process of ceremony so that you feel part of it, you're engaged in it. It's not like watching a movie. You're actually in it. You're not just observing it. And the thing I often find interesting about ritual is, is, as you said, the work's already been done, and the actual act of it, um, I think you've referred to it as sacred theater, the action of it, the being in it, is, is simple, in a sense. It's very symbolic. And, and simple, and I know many people come in with this Western idea that it's going to be so dramatic and exotic and otherworldly and huge and in this very distracted way, instead of feeling the bigness of it because it is, as you said, tapping into that real place inside and opening us up from the inside out. Absolutely. I, there's a, a little story. There's a lady who runs a shop in the south of Vancouver, and her business was not working well, and she was getting sick, and all the big shops around her were taking over her business. And I'd gone in there to buy some resources for my students, and she'd said, would, would, you, would you just pray for me? I know you do this stuff. Would you just do that stuff for me? And I said, yes, of course. And I walked out the door, and I went and bought some other stuff, and I came back, and I said, you know what I want you to do? I'd like you to... Um, Spread some milk on your doorstep, on the shop doorstep, every day. And every evening you wash it away, and every morning you put it back. And this woman, without hesitation, did it. And I'm driving home. It's an hour's drive from her shop. And I'm completely relaxed, because actually, the fact that she'd asked me, and I'd thought about it, and I'd had my little conversation with Spirit, the work had already been done. But she needed to know that she was important. She needed to know that there was a symbolism of her healing. And she did that for seven days. 
And she emailed me. And this woman didn't even... She must have got my email from my credit card. And she emailed me to tell me that her business had picked up, um, her son was better, her pink eye had gone. And that was because of this milk on the doorstep. But in fact, it was the fact that in engaging with me and me engaging with spirit, we started a process. Thank you, Jean-Luc, for being with us this week, uh, I mean, in this show, and I hope that you'll join us again. At some point. I'd love We've it. been remiss in our duties of talking about the conference and other things, but hopefully people will go to the website, circleofgreatmystery.com, and hopefully you'll join us again. I'd welcome. Thank you so much. I give thanks to the ancestors, to the earth, the sky, the spirit of community, the spirit of the wolf, and the spirit of the teacher, and most of all, a deep thanks to the heart the place that connects us all. Thank you, everyone. I hope you'll join us again next week.